Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Bible. Father, we thank you that it is your word, that it is not changing. It doesn't change no matter what time we're in. Father, we thank you that you are Lord of all the earth, that you never change as well. Father, thank you that you're the same yesterday, today and forever. Father, I pray you'll help us to understand more of your word this, this morning. Father, that it'll make a difference in our lives and that you'll help us to be better disciples of the Lord Jesus because of it. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Right, so Ian told you that they started a, a new series. You started a new series on the fruit of the Spirit um, about five weeks ago. No, four weeks ago. This is the fifth week. Um, Ian did two weeks on the Holy Spirit. John McGowan has done one, and then Val Hal did one last week. So we'll have a quick um, look at something that somebody told me once. When I, one of the first things I ever did in Christian work was a little Bible study on the fruit of the Spirit for something. I can't remember what it was. It might have been one of our outreach youth groups um, when I worked in York for the church there. Um, but it wasn't the week that I got attacked there, so that's fine. Because uh, that would have been a bit awkward, wouldn't it, if you were doing the fruit of the Spirit and you got attacked in the same week. It wasn't that week. Um, so, the fruit of the Spirit. And I, sh- I showed all these notes that I'd made to one of my friends who I trusted in the church, and I said, can you give me some advice? Just have a quick look at this. What do you think? And he... Uh, so no, it all looks fine that you've made an error that I, that I just uh, I see it all the time and it really winds me up. And he sort of politely rebuked me about it. And it was the fact, ah, look at that, there's no S on fruit. And I'm thinking, actually, that's quite good. Because if you... T- Here's a picture of some fruit. They're uh, grapes. A grapevine just produces grapes. I thought I'd show you more of the vine to prove that it just produces grapes. There's nothing... It doesn't produce apples as well. Hello, pear. It doesn't produce peaches or pears. It just produces grapes. And the thing is, the fruit of the Spirit, God doesn't try and produce one bit of it in one person and one bit of it in another. So there's not a bit of love in you, a bit of peace in you, patience in you. They're all, all nine of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, kindness... And self-control, I might have missed one. I do apologise. He grows all of them in each Christian at different levels, at different rates. Because, you know, sometimes we may think, I'm not particularly patient. But I'm quite good at some of the other things. But God is growing patience in all Christians. He's growing love in all Christians. He's growing all the fruit of the Spirit in all of us. But it's at different rates. And it's by his Spirit that he does this. And eventually they'll make us all a little bit more like Jesus. So... Somebody showed me how to make these presentations the other day, so I thought, oh, I'll have a go. So I've tried. So, like I said, John McGowan did the first one after Ian gave you the couple of weeks' introduction on love. Then Valhalla did joy. And today we're on peace. And I was terrified when Lisa was reading because she read uh, The Fruit of the Spirit, uh, Love, Joy, Patience. And I thought, oh no, I've written a whole sermon on something that doesn't even exist. Um, but she went back to it, oh, peace, and then carried on. So, uh, so it's all right. And then um, just before this passage, in Galatians, that Lisa read to us, she read this bit as well. Paul, the chapter, writes the book, describes that we have two natures. And I thought it's quite important to just flesh this out um, before we get there. So we have two natures. We have a fleshly nature and a spiritual nature. And they sort of fight against each other. And we're born with a fleshly nature. Um, in the NIV it says a it sinful nature. Sinful nature. I've got a different translation, they mean exactly the same thing. They're fleshly nature and sinful nature. Some of the old 
Um, theologians used to talk, like, talk about the flesh, and I quite like some of them, so I like the term fleshly nature. So they talk about the fleshly nature and the spiritual nature. And if you think of them almost as plants, if you've got these two natures, if you're a Christian and you have a spiritual nature and a fleshly nature, if you are always feeding your fleshly nature, if you're always doing all the bad things, like putting into yourself all the bad things, like if you feed a plant, give it food, water, sunlight, it'll grow. So if you are feeding your spiritual nature, it'll grow. Feeding your fleshly nature, it'll grow and it'll end up giving you bad things. And if you put your spiritual nature in a cupboard, it'll grow weak, you know, it won't do any good at all. But if you swap it round, if you ignore your fleshly nature as much as possible, even though it's difficult, and if you feed your spiritual nature by reading the Bible, by praying, spending time with other Christians, it'll blossom and it'll bloom. And that's what Jesus wants us to do. And if you think of it like plants, you know, one will eventually die off. I mean, we'll never kill our fleshly nature until we meet Jesus. But it'll get weaker and our spiritual nature will get stronger. So, we're on the topic of peace today. Hopefully that makes some sense um, and we'll make a start. Right. I've got a couple of questions to work through as we go through. Oh, wait. Having that for passage that we read. I'll read it again just so we know where we are. So it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Okay. The idea of what is peace, though. Yeah, funny ideas, don't you? I put peace into Google, and if you click images, you get things like this, which is uh, very nice, but it's not exactly what peace is all about. And then for other things that we think of maybe with peace, is people like, you know, we go to war to try and sort these problems out. People send... Um, armies in to, to create peace in different countries. It doesn't always work. So, I think I'm going to go to a question. Uh, I'm getting a bit excited, as you can see. So I put that in place to what does the Bible say. So we'll go to the... Right, I apologise. What is peace? That is the question. We've got there eventually. What is peace? I've got a definition written down here. It's not perfect, but we'll, I'll give you it and you can disagree and, or agree as much as you like. Just don't tell me. It is... There's a state of relationship where both sides have full and entire contentment with the other. No shakes of heads, but I could just be asleep. So, in peace, there's no um, problems with either side of people in the relationship. But then, in the Bible, I think there are three obvious places where there's perfect peace. One of them is in the Godhead. There is no point in the Godhead where you read... Anywhere in the Bible it says, God the Father says uh, to God the Son, please go and tidy your bedroom. And he says, no, I'm not going to go tidy my bedroom. They've always done exactly what they want to do. There's no problems ever between the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit work perfectly with one another. They are always of the same mind and they know what's going on. The other places, the Bible talks about the new heavens and the new earth, the sort of um, end times, the fact that Eventually, Jesus is going to sort all the problems out in the world. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth. And there, there'll be perfect peace. There'll be no more tears, no more suffering, no more death. And there'll be peace everlasting. But the first one that we come to in the Bible is what God creates in Genesis. He creates the world. He's there six days and it's all there. And it's all lovely, which is an understatement. But Adam and Eve, they have everything they need. They walk with God in the garden, the Bible says. Can you imagine that? Just wandering along. 
talking with God there, stood next to you. They don't need to kill anything for their food. They can just pick it off the trees and eat it. There's no need to kill anything for any reason. God and man are in perfect unity. There's no rivalry, there's no need, no greed and no pride. And I thought, actually, why, in a sort of odd way, why isn't life like that still? Because there is enough food for everybody in the world. You sort of know that. There is enough food, and the amount of food that, that I sometimes eat could easily feed several people. There is enough food for everyone in the world. There's enough water for everyone in the world. Or at least there's the technology to make it clean so everyone can drink it or pull it out of the ground. And there's enough space for everybody to live. So why isn't their peace? Which is the second question. Ah, see. Very nice. Um, so why isn't there peace? Well, the answer always comes to these questions. It's because of sin. Because sin came into the world, there isn't peace. And we see that exactly as it speaks out in Genesis. So if you turn to Genesis and read through the first few chapters, you'll see this come through. That because of sin, there isn't peace. Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because Eve was tricked into it and Adam let her do it. And man wronged God, and God separated himself from man. So there's, there's something wrong. God separated himself from them because they've done something wrong. Hannah and I have just been to help on a camp up in Scotland. Hannah was um, in a lodge with nine... 16-year-old girls who were crying every day and she didn't quite understand why. They're all a bit over-emotional. But apparently that's what 16-year-old girls do. Um, I have no idea why. And I was working with the 16 and 17-year-old um, you can't really call them kids, can you? But kids who help. They come and serve. They're part of our discipleship program. Um, and we have a thing called a question teapot. And in it they can... They can and we have an indicative sugar... Um, yeah, no, an imperative sugar pot as well. But that's a story for another day. In the question teapot... They can open it up, write a question, put it in, and at some point in our schedule during the day, we'll say, right, we're going to have the question teapot now. So the three of the leaders, and there were uh, 15 of these youngsters, we'd get it, we'd open it up, and we'd pull one out, we'd read the question, and then we'd discuss it between each other, because they like to talk about interesting things. And one day, we got into a debate about whether you know, God should have stopped Adam and Eve sinning in the first place. And then... Um, it ended up basically being me talking to uh, a lad that had come over from France who was 17 but very, uh, very good at English and you know, quite, quite clever, much cleverer than I am. And, um, and we were talking about this for ages. And there was another girl who was in the room who's um, not sort of intelligent in the same way but very, very sharp. She was getting more and more cross as this discussion went on. Um, so I would say, look... God did the right thing by letting Adam eat the apple. You know, our freedom's at stake if he doesn't, if God just sort of skirts everything off. He doesn't create people who can make choices. He creates robots that just worship him um, because, you know, because they have to, because they have no other choice. And he wouldn't accept any of this. He was always wanting a more philosophical argument, and I'm not particularly philosophical, so he wasn't going to get very far with that. But he just wouldn't have it. And it went on for ages and ages. Eventually, this girl that was sat next to us, um, who I... She's absolutely hilarious. Really good to have around. She just went, to be honest with you, I agree with God. Because if somebody had done that to me, I'd hate them and all. <laughs> oh, well, you know, she's uh, hit the nail on the head, probably speaking. But, and eventually I had to say, right, we'll just stop this now. And if we get time, we'll maybe talk about it again another day. But one of the other lads was there who was saying, but surely, discussing whether or not God would have allowed, should have allowed sin into the world is like discussing whether the moon is an orange or if whether cheddar is a better cheese than Wednesdale. 
Because nothing is going to change the fact that there is sin in the world. The moon isn't an orange, and that Wensleydale is the better cheese. However you do, there's still sin in the world. And there isn't peace because of sin. Sin separated us from God, and being separated from God is why we don't have the peace. But then if you look around the world, there's not peace anywhere, is there? At the minute, riots in London have been insane. I've got some, I've got some friends in Nottingham, I've got some friends up in Manchester, and there's been things popping up on Facebook saying, you know, thanks for your concern about uh, um, whether we're safe in the riots and things like this. It just seems terrifying. But there is rioting all around, there's no peace anywhere. And we don't have peace because of sin, and because sin separates us from God, and God provides us with this peace. We'll get to that in a minute. I feel this is a stupid question, but there's a reason for it. The idea that, do you actually want peace? I was looking through some things. Do, we, do you want peace? It does sound stupid. It sounds completely um, idiotic almost to say, do you want peace? But I think, I think, I've just come from Derby, so I do apologise, but I think that um, uh, there are some questions that sort of follow this. And I've written them down here so I don't forget them. So here is the first one. And if any of these apply to you, you don't have to put your hand up or anything because um, you might feel embarrassed, but just think about it. So the first one is, are you harbouring any grudges? second one is, are you withholding forgiveness from anybody for anything that they've done? Are you bitter about anything? And are you controlling situations and keeping peace from others? And the last one is, are you feeling guilty for something that happened a long time ago? I think all these things can actually affect our own sort of personal peace, if that makes sense. If we're struggling with these things, if we're turning them over, if we're bitter, we're constantly not letting ourselves have any peace because we're, we're busy like, winding ourselves up about these things that's not particularly helpful. But if we want peace, surely these things aren't helpful. They're not biblical things to do either. Withholding forgiveness is not a biblical thing. Being bitter, controlling other people, feeling guilty about things, they're not biblical things for us to do but the thing is they affect Christians all the time sometimes we don't want to say they do because people think that we're, we're not a very good Christian or we're quite weak or you know, they don't want to say oh I'm struggling with this but they affect Christians all the time and if you're in that group then you're not alone in that some of these things I've struggled with myself a lot over the time so the next question is how can peace be achieved right Ooh. There's a bit of a lack. Right. If peace is being separated from God, the only way surely to get peace is by being reconnected to God. There's, if that's it, that's fairly simple. If peace is being separated from God, like Adam and Eve were when they were kicked out of the garden, getting peace is by being reconnected to God. Well, the question is, how can we achieve that? How does that work? And does it work? But as Christians, we know that the gospel is the heart of the Christian message. The gospel is how practically everything Christian works. If we're, if we're Christians, the gospel is what encourages us to carry on being Christians. The gospel is what encourages us to share our faith with other people. The gospel is what encourages us to grow as Christians. But what is the gospel? If it's the answer to all these questions, what is it? Well, firstly, I'll uh, give you this. This is where it comes in. So a bit of its own. The gospel centres around the cross. That's what that is. It's a cross. What happens is, originally when God made everything, and Adam and Eve were in the garden, man and God were together, they were peace perfectly, but eventually Adam and Eve decide to try and swap places with God. They say, look, I can make my own choices, I know what I'm doing, 
I want to be in charge of my own life. I don't need you to tell me what's right and what's wrong. So they go against God. And because of that, God separates himself from them, rightly so. And man and God are separated without any sort of obvious ways of being permanently brought back together. But then years later, there's a boy born, born of a virgin, who lives a perfect life. He dies a death on the cross. And three days he spends in the tomb and he rises after three days. Coming out of the grave, he conquers sin, Satan, death, hell and demons all together. And God is clearly accepting of his sacrifice because he rises again. The problem is that the problem that sin makes, Jesus sorts out. Jesus remakes our connection with God because on the cross he takes the punishment for our sin. There was a, an old theologian that calls this the great exchange and it means that what we, when we decided as people to separate ourselves from God by doing what we shouldn't do, Jesus says, look, I've died on the cross. If you want me to take the punishment you deserve... Let's swap places. So he says, if you don't want to take the punishment for everything that you've done wrong, the death I died on the cross, I'll take that punishment there, and you don't have to deal with it. And that's the offer that Jesus gives us. That is what somebody once called the great exchange. It's, I don't know if when you were at school you like swapped things with your friends. I do it all the time. I used to get in trouble for it with my parents, for swapping all sorts of things that I probably shouldn't. But it's the best swap deal ever. Jesus says, look, I'll take your sin and I'll give you my perfectness, my righteousness, the Bible calls it. And if you want it, you just have to believe in me and make me Lord of your life. And if you don't want it, God will respect that decision and we'll have to pay the penalty for our own sins ourselves in hell. But the thing is, Jesus isn't just a short-term fix for a week or a couple of weeks. He's not like a, a sticking plaster on an open like a chest wound when they've done open-heart surgery. He's a fix about eternity. Jesus doesn't just care about, you know, your day-to-day milling about. He cares about your eternal life from now into eternity. He cares about that you're well today, well tomorrow, but well in 5,000 years, a million years' time from now. I'll just find there. Got a little bookmarks in here to help me find places quicker. And it's quite interesting, isn't it, that Jesus can sort of give out this peace. There's a, um, a verse in Isaiah that... It's in Isaiah chapter 9, and it says this. For people that think, you know, Jesus just, they made it all up, and several hundred years before Jesus was even born, a chap called Isaiah said this in chapter 9, verse 6. He says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. So Jesus can give us this peace because he's, it's the prince of it. I think if you're a prince of something, you can sort of say what you do with it and, and where it goes and how it works. And if Jesus chooses to give us peace, if we have faith in him, then we get peace because we have faith in him, because he says so. And I'm hoping that for those of you who have heard Jai's series on big words ending shun, have been hearing about it through Hannah over the past while. I don't know, have you done justification? Okay, somebody said yes. So um, if you don't know what justification is, Asked Jai. There's a verse in Romans chapter 5, and it's chapter 5, verse 1, and it says, Therefore, and that just means that the chapter before, Paul has written all about this idea of justification by faith, which just means we're made perfect with God, we're made right with God by believing, by having faith in Jesus. So he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So our being at peace with God is because we're justified by faith through Jesus Christ. But the thing is that being in relationship with God through Jesus and having peace is sort of, it's most of the story, but it's not the entire story of peace. We'll know peace internally because we know long term, ultimately our sins are forgiven, that when we die we'll be with Jesus forever and that'll be an amazing thing. But what about all our earthly problems where there isn't peace? What about you know, problems in family or work or wherever where there isn't peace? How does, how does this peace that Jesus offers work there? And does it work? Well, I've got a couple of uh, examples. Of, yeah, a couple of examples I've picked out from the Bible. I was just checking the uh, slide was in the right place. So when does this peace stop working? Jesus gives us this peace of knowing that our sins are forgiven, that one day we'll be with him forever. But we don't always feel peace, at peace all of the time. So my first example is the man Abraham. Now in the Old Testament, Abraham was really wealthy. Not just sort of, you know, had a few quid in his back pocket, but really wealthy. He had, he had a really, really nice tent. Um, he lived in tent. He lived in a tent, so it was all right. It's like having a really posh house. He had loads of like animals, cattle, all that sort of stuff. Loads of it. And, you know, servants, people who worked for him, really wealthy. And eventually, one, one day, God comes to him and goes, Abraham, I want you to move. And me and Hannah have just moved into a house. Moving house is not a particularly peaceful thing to do. Um, Lisa just moved house as well and is agreeing. And it's not the most peaceful thing to do. But when God says to him, Abraham, I want you, he said basically, I want you to go. Abraham doesn't go right. If you give me the postcode, I'll tap it into my GPS. Cause it, well, he didn't have one, and they didn't have postcodes. He didn't say, give me a map and a compass. He just said, all right, effectively. He said, look, I'll, if you want me to go, I'll go. And can you imagine pulling everything out of your house to move and then actually having to pack up your whole house as well, folding it into its bags with all the poles and pegs and strings and everything that it has. That's what he had to do. He had to pack it all up and he had to move. And it's not particularly peaceful, but he went with it. And then later on in his life, God tells Abraham that through him, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And eventually, you know, he, then, him and his wife Sarah have a child called Isaac. And Isaac is like the Hebrew word for laughter, because um, I don't know if any of you here are about 90, but when Sarah, Abraham's wife, gave birth to Isaac, she was 90. Um, so, plenty of time for everyone to have lots of children. But he had this child, Isaac, and it was, it was his heart's delight. It was like the, the best thing he'd ever had. Think of the, the, the most important thing in your life. And to, to Abraham, that was Isaac. He had this amazing little boy who, who he was teaching, he was wanting to bring up, and he knew that through this little boy, God was going to fulfill the promises that he'd given him. And then one day, I imagine, I don't know this for definite, Isaac, Isaac would have been about, you know, seven, eight, nine, something like that. God speaks to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, your special little boy, he goes, yeah, I know him, Isaac, that's the one, cracking. He says, yeah, I want you to sacrifice him to me. And I imagine it must have just pulled Abraham's heart right out of his chest and he doesn't know what to do with it. But he listens to God and he says, right, okay, I'll do it. Eventually he comes around and says, I'll do it. So he takes him, they collect all the wood that they need, they put it on Isaac's back so he can carry it up the mountain. Um, Abraham doesn't do the carrying. Isaac does the carrying. They carry it up to the top of the mountain. They set up an altar with these, the sticks. 
And Abraham, uh, Isaac says to his dad, Abraham, he says, Dad, where's the sacrifice for the, uh, for the altar? And Abraham says, you know, the Lord will provide for himself a sacrifice. And after that, they, he binds his hands and binds his feet together. He lays him on the altar. And Abraham's ready to, to kill Isaac. He's ready to sacrifice his son because that's what God's asked him to do. And just as he's about to, God says, stop. It's fine. And so he takes, Abraham, uh, takes Isaac off the altar and he, and he provides for them a, a ram caught in a thicket so they take the ram, they, they bind it and they kill the ram they sacrifice that instead. And it was only Abraham's faith that let him know that even if he killed Isaac, God somehow was still going to keep his promise that he believed fully in his heart that God would raise him back from the dead so that he could carry on and he could fulfil the promise that he'd given him because he believed God that much that whatever happened in his life God was going to come good on what he said. I do wonder, though, if after that had happened, if um, Abraham ever said to Isaac, Isaac, should we, uh, should we go for a walk today? And he said, not likely, because um, of what happened that time. But, you know, you can make your own mind up on that. I've got a couple of others that I'll skip through quicker than that one, hopefully. Job. There's a book in the Bible. It's the oldest book in the Bible, book of Job. And it's about this guy who, again, was really wealthy, had everything, massive family, massive wealth, really, really righteous guy, really faithful to God in everything that he did. And the book tells, uh, tells us how it went there. That one day the devil went to God and said, God, look, you've got this guy Job. He's really faithful to you. He's really, you know, he's basically probably the most faithful person that there is about at the minute. Um, but that's because you've given him a load of stuff. And God says to the devil, no, it's not. He believes in me. He has faith in me. His faith is that strong that no matter what happened to him, he'd, he'd believe in me. And the devil basically says, look, it's not. If you took all the things away, he, he'd give up on his faith, he'd chuck in the towel, and he'd be off. And eventually it works out that, that God says to the devil, you cannot touch his life, but he will be faithful to me, whatever you do. So Job loses everything. All his wealth goes, his family die. Even his health goes at some point, he's like covered in boils. But all the way through, He's faithful to God. All his friends are saying, look, look, clearly God's, he's judging you. He doesn't care for you anymore. He's not going to look after you. You know, give it up. But he says, no, I'm going to be faithful to God. You know, whatever's going on around me, I'm going to say, blessed be his name. And he's faithful to God. All the way through that, he knew inside that he had the peace with God, that whatever happened to him, he'd be all right, because God was on his side. And eventually, after this, he gets a new family, he gets all his wealth back and God gives him back everything that was lost. Then you get David, he crops up in the Old Testament as well. David, we, I imagine you've all heard the story of David and Goliath, the little boy that defeats you know, the mighty warrior. And I don't know quite how that would work today. I think it's a brilliant way of doing, doing warfare. I wish we did this now. Effectively what happened was the Philistine army were on one side, the Israelite army were on the other and their biggest champion, their strongest, mightiest warrior, would march out and say, look, fight me. If you win, we'll all be your slaves. But if I win, you'll be our slaves. And we'll take your land. Um, and it's brilliant. You've got a whole army each side. Potentially one person will die, and that'll be it all sorted. It's a great way of doing warfare. You don't need to lose thousands of people's lives. But all the Israelites are terrified of this chapter life. And little David has got some older brothers in the army, and he's only a little boy himself, he doesn't tell us how old, but it says he's little. So 
He goes down, he's given his brother some cheese and bread that his dad sent him down with, and a bit for the, uh, the captain of the army, because his dad wants to make sure his boys are well looked after. It's all for a bit of a, you know, one of them. One of them. I, can't remember, I can't think of the word off the top of my head, so that'll have to do. Um, and he says, and David's there when he hears this. This massive champion comes out. He talks about Goliath being like nine foot tall. So that's sort of me and a half tall and, you know, enormous. And David said, all the Israelites, he's sort of like, he can feel the sort of shivers that are going through them when he, when he speaks. And he thinks, ah. he just gets cross, basically. He gets really cross and says, what, what is that enormous, uncircumcised Philistine doing, shouting against God? I could fight him. And eventually the story goes that David goes to see King Saul. King Saul gives David his armour, but he doesn't need it because it's too big and it wouldn't fit and it's a hindrance. And David goes out with five smooth stones. Some people say that's five to represent five different things or because he thought he'd you know, do something amazing. I think it's just in case if he missed the first time, he thought he'd have a second shot, third, fourth and fifth before he eventually got trampled. But you know, each to their own. But David must have known inside that if somebody's fighting against God and he's on God's side and he's being faithful to God, that God is always going to come good. God is always going to look out for him and look after him. And you know, the story ends with Goliath falls, David wins, and eventually becomes the best king that Israel had, even though he wasn't perfect. I believe these chaps turned up last week, and I absolutely love the story of Paul and Silas in the book of Acts when they get arrested and they're put in prison for doing gospel work. Um, I may sort of over-dramatise the situation in my head, and I apologise for that. But they get arrested, they're put in prison. And all night in prison, they're singing songs. They're singing hymns of worship to God. I mean, that must be... For them, I bet it was brilliant. Having a great time in prison. Singing worship to God because they've been, they've been arrested for doing gospel work. But could you imagine it the next morning? If, you know, if it was prisons like they are in my head, that you know, everyone's in their cells... And in the morning they like come out and give you breakfast at tables. It probably doesn't quite work like that. But could you imagine being Paul and Silas, the little like Christian people who've been up singing Shine Jesus Shine all night at the top of their voice, keeping all the other people in the prison awake. Or you know, like the big murderers, thieves, all those sorts of people. Could you imagine at breakfast all these really big angry people who've been kept up all night by Graham Kendrick songs? I imagine they'd be fuming. But they knew that whatever happened to them, their relationship with God was there. But they could do that sort of thing because ultimately they're at peace with God. That God would look out for them, whatever happened. And if these big angry people who were in prison with them killed them, they'd be with Jesus. And then we've got one last example here. That all those are spelt a J. So that says Jesus. Who is our prime example as Christians? I'm glad that I spelled it right. That would be really embarrassing if that had been wrong. So, is Jesus. Who... If you read through, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night as he's uh, about to be crucified, he sits there and he prays and he sort of pours his heart out and the Bible says that he sweats, like drops of blood come from him. Which doesn't sound particularly peaceful. And, you know, doesn't at all. But eventually he just says, God, look, whatever you want, I'll do. Whatever your will is for me, I'll do it. Because Jesus knew that putting his life into God's hands was the safest place for ever to be. And that's when, after that, that Jesus is taken, he's crucified, he's put in a tomb for three days and he rises again. Jesus knew that whatever God was going to do with his life, it was going to be the perfect thing for him to do. Even though it was difficult, even though it didn't feel nice, even though it wasn't easy, Jesus knew 
that God's plan for him was the best plan wherever he was. So the question up there, when does this peace stop working? Well, for people in the Bible who are being faithful, it never stops working, even through the difficult times. This peace, it's an internal one that connects us to God and it just means we know full well, deep down, that when we die we're going to be with Jesus. What happens to in life are put into perspective. When we look at problems in our families and like, you know, people don't always see eye to eye. Um, I've often told stories about me and my brother when I've been talking about this sort of stuff. We never see eye to eye. Um, well, not all, not the majority of the time we don't see eye to eye. But if we're Christians, we can ask God for the help to bring peace into our family life. If God's going to grow peace in us like a fruit, he can help us to bring that into our family life. I've got a little bit in Colossians here. It's Colossians 3 and it's verse 15. And it says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you are called in one body, and be thankful. Sometimes it's quite difficult to let the peace rule in our hearts. But if we're going to be followers of Jesus and do what he wants, we have to try our best to let God's peace rule in our hearts and let that spill out into family life when it's difficult. Or when we're uh, struggling with work issues or, or financial issues, we have to remember that Jesus has promised to meet all our needs in Christ. Uh, God's promised to meet all our needs in Christ Jesus. That doesn't necessarily mean that everything will be easy, that you know we'll have enough money in the bank all the time, but he's promised to meet all our needs in Christ Jesus. And then, that's not the right bookmark, it's number four. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 it says, verse 33, uh, for God is not a God of peace. Uh, for no, that's not true. For God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. That would have been awkward if it had said that. That would have made everything I've said heretical. God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. When things are awkward around us, when we're not sure what's going on, God is a God of peace all the time. And sometimes, it's like I said before, if you, one of those people that when I said, do you want peace, and you sort of picked up one of the questions like, am I holding back forgiveness from somebody, am I bearing grudges? As Christians, we have to be able to forgive everyone for what they've done to us. I've heard Christians say before, I'll never be able to forgive them for what they've done. I'll never forgive them for what they've done. And sometimes, you can understand why they say it. Some of the things that people have told me that have happened to them in the past, they say, I just can't, I can't forgive them for what they've done. As Christians, that's not something that we can do. It's not an option for Christians to say, I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm not going to forgive somebody for what they've done to me. Um, and the reason I say that is because that's not how God treats us. God doesn't say, so if somebody steals something from me, I'd say, I'm not going to forgive them because what they've stolen is going to cost me, I don't know, £100 to replace, whatever. I'm not going to forgive them for that. But then when it comes to God, if God said, I'm not going to forgive you because what you've done is going to cost me the life of my son, you could understand that if he said, I'm not going to forgive you because it'll cost me the life of my son. But he doesn't, he says, I'm going to forgive you and at the cost of my son. So whatever people have done to us, we have to be able to forgive them. Because otherwise we're not doing what God wants us to do. He's forgiven us at the cost of his son. We should be able to forgive other people and let go of our grudges and our bitterness because of what Jesus has done for us. It's not easy and it's not... Um, yeah, Basically it's not easy. But Jesus did it for us by dying. And we have to be able to forgive other people. 
the Bible does say that, you know, forgive others like Christ forgave you. And then in Isaiah it also says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. It's in one of the sort of um, songs in Isaiah in chapter 26. But if our mind is fixed on God, he'll keep us in peace. Even when things are difficult, even when we don't want to forgive other people. If we fix our eyes on God, he'll help us to grow the way that he wants us to. Right. We're very near the end now, for those of you who are excited by that prospect. I was thinking to myself, fruit grows quite slowly. And it's quite expensive in the supermarket because of this. If we're going to be people who are Christians, the fruit of the Spirit will grow in us, but it may be slowly. If we're not quite sure you know, if this is going to happen, it'll happen over time. It takes time to grow fruit. It'll take time for these spiritual characteristics to grow in us. But they will grow, because Jesus promises that. And God's peace, it's not about you know, candles and baths and whale song and a massage, but it's about that deep sense of belonging to God for all eternity. There's a bit of a difference there. Like Sometimes the world shows you like, have a nice sort of peaceful, soothing bath. Jesus doesn't say have a nice, soothing bath, unless you're really dirty. He says, have a relationship with me and I'll give you that peace you're looking for. That'll last for eternity. In Philippians, you get that famous verse on peace uh, Philippians 4 verse 7 it says and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus which is quite good on one sense and the other sense it's really good because we don't understand it but it says it surpasses all understanding so we don't understand how it works Jesus just says it will so that's alright if you don't understand it same boat as me but he says says it will so it's alright and when we know that in our lives, if we know God's peace in our lives, all the problems that we have, they won't disappear, but they become more clear. If we think we're struggling to make ends meet day to day, ultimately, long term, the grand scheme of things, if we know we're going to be with Jesus, the problem's only minute in time scale. It may seem really big to us today, but one day it'll be insignificant. So I've got a couple of things to end on, and then we'll finish in John's Gospel. So if you're somebody who doesn't know God's peace in your life, but you'd like to, the only way you can know that is through Jesus. It's only by having our sins forgiven, by having that reconnection with God, that we can know God's peace. So if you don't know that, that's the message of the Gospel. Have your sins forgiven, come to God, and understand a bit more about God's peace. Secondly, if you do know God through Jesus, we have to submit our lives to him and let him take charge let God's peace put our lives into eternal perspective and then thirdly we have to be Jesus' instrument on the earth of sharing his peace with other people by sharing the gospel and telling people about this that he offers Okay, so I'll close with a verse from John chapter 16 it's quite an encouragement really so um, you can be happy with this I have said these things to you uh, that in me you may have peace In the world you will have tribulation or problems. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So in life we'll struggle, but Jesus has overcome the world. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Father, we thank you for everything that he said, that he did, the life that he lived, the death that he died, and the fact that he rose again. Father, we thank you that through him 
we can know peace by being reconnected to you. And Father, I pray that you'll make that really clear to each of us when we're struggling to know that if we come to you, the peace that you give us is different to the peace the world offers. And Father, I thank you that we can know you through Jesus. For that means that we can know you for eternity, whatever's happening around us, long term. It's such a small problem. And Father, help us to share this with other people. Father, help us to be able to be honest with ourselves as well, to say whether we do or don't know you, and to, to be able to come to you and help ask for help when we need to forgive people that we struggle to forgive or to let go of grudges that we've um, held for a while too. But Father, we thank you that in you there is peace and it's perfect peace. And it's different to what the world offers. And Father, thank you also that Jesus has overcome the world. Amen.